I am not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Woody Allen. I don't know who this person is, but I thought it was a decent quote, so I used it. You only live once, but can be born twice. Then you can live forever. Two quotes, seemingly on opposite perspectives. Two perspectives on death and resurrection. One tries to joke his way around the fear of death. I'm not afraid, but I am afraid. It's kind of what Woody Allen is saying. And the other expresses hope for life after death or eternal life. Is there hope for life after death? And what is the basis of such hope? Is it experience? Is it feeling? Is it all the near-death experience testimonies that are on YouTube? Is it a hope-so thing? I feel like it'll be this or... I hope, I really hope it'll be like this. The basis is a person. Not experience. Not anything of man. The one who, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came, it says in Hebrews, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to do that. See, this is the one who rocked the Apostle Paul, well, he wasn't Apostle Paul at that point. This is the one who rocked Saul's world. The one he thought was a false messiah. The one he, 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 he was trying to stamp out the way or the gospel or the truth about Jesus and the resurrection and the church that was being built on the gospel. But Paul now knows that Jesus is the Messiah and that He was raised from the dead and that He has brought salvation because He has seen Him. He has been confronted with Him. He has been converted. And now the faith that He was trying to destroy, He preaches. Paul's hope for life after death is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is rooted in the Old Testament and all the promises of the coming Messiah the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And listen, read Romans 9, read Romans 10. You know, see Paul's heart. Paul's desire is for his Jewish brethren to come to faith in Jesus. He wants them, he has a burning desire for them to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Him, to rest in in Him to have salvation in their own Messiah that they have missed and rejected. See, the, Jesus is why He's been arrested, really. The Gospel is why He's been arrested. What He will bring out as the hope of the resurrection in Jesus is why He is going through all of this. And I wrestled with this section this week and what do I do with this and, and how should I preach this? And I basically landed on the fact that my main focus should be on what he calls the hope and the resurrection. Set it in context in what's going on in the meeting. But spend most of our time focusing there. Titled the sermon, The Hope of the Resurrection. And the main point is what I want you to see is resurrection is the, is the keynote. It is the central theme. The central theme and hope of the Christian life.
it must be there or you don't have Christianity. And Paul is wanting to root his brother's hope in life after death and hope in resurrection in Jesus and the one who has come to save his people. Resurrection is the central theme and hope of the Christian life. And Paul goes pretty directly before the council to that truth and that truth splits or divides the meeting. It splits and divides the world. It even splits and divides, I'll put it in quotes, the church. But I want us to focus there. We'll set it in context uh, and then we'll make a few more points and we'll be done. But uh, first, the hope of the resurrection. In verses 23, in the, the verses that I read, what's happening is, as I said, the tribune is trying to get to the bottom of this, and he's not been able to do this any other way, so he wants to get the Sanhedrin or the council or the leaders of the Jews in front of him and get Paul in front of him and find out what this mess is about. Why are they so upset? What is the problem? What's causing this disruption? Because he's responsible to preserve peace. I mean, he's not taking sides. He just wants to get this over. He's responsible to preserve peace. And he wants to work that way. And you've seen that. So what he's done is gathered the council. He's, he's brought Paul before them. And Paul begins to speak and say that he's lived his life in good conscience. And the high priest Ananias has somebody slap him across the mouth. Now, if you read commentaries and things, you're going to see a bunch of guesses about why Paul did what he did and said what he said. We don't know. Did he not recognize the high priest because he hadn't been in Jerusalem for a long time and really didn't know that he was the high priest? Was it, and we know that he had eyesight problems since his encounter with Christ. Did he just not see who he was? Who gave the order? Did the high priest give the order with a hand signal or did he actually speak and say, slap him? Listen, did Paul just get mad when he got punched in the mouth and, and fly off the handle? I doubt that, but I, the big picture, it doesn't really even matter. Ananias is known to be a wicked high priest. He's, he's violating the law as they're examining Paul. You know, they've been, they were in the temple, they were beating him and trying to kill him and they're just trying to pick up where they left off in some sense. But Ananias did command them to strike him. They did strike him and Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's true. Apart from repentance, that is true. Washing up the outside, cleaning up the outside, no dealing with the heart, Right? had become a characteristic of the Pharisees. But notice this, even in this context, and even though he was done wrong, Paul has a, a respect for authority. Once they pointed out to Paul that Ananias was the high priest, he said, I didn't know. Because God's word says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. Even in that context, and the only reason I'm making a point of this is because we need it these days. Parents, raise your children to have a respect for the proper authorities. God, first and foremost. You as their parents. Their teachers, police. Listen, this is a rabbit trail and I'm going to shoot it really quick, but a reason a lot of young people are dying at the hands of police is they won't submit to the authority. It drives me crazy. 
it's not sensical to resist and not have respect for authority. But it, it's really just, it's not taught in a lot of areas. But notice, Paul has been punched and he still has proper respect for the authority. He, Paul is abiding by the law and the high priest is breaking it. But he is respecting the authority there. Now, watch this. Listen, and Paul didn't just do this to split the meeting, okay? He wasn't just being snarky or crafty. But in, in verse 6 it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, the whole council's there. And Paul's a former Pharisee. So he's, he's trying to connect here. He's trying to make a connection because he has concern for the people who hear him. He sees this as a gospel. We've seen this in him before. He sees this as another gospel opportunity. He's not just trying to get out from under a charge or dodge justice. He was not thinking about that. This is a gospel opportunity for Paul. And so he, he, he does something interesting and he, he goes right to the point. But it says, when Paul perceived that one part, verse 6, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection, or the hope and, in the ESV, the hope and the resurrection that I am on trial. And this was like, Although it wasn't intended that way, it was like taking a, a match and striking it and throwing it in the middle of some fuel. And he tells us why. Luke tells us why. When he said this, when he said this about being a Pharisee and hoping in the resurrection, he struck a chord because there's a division there in the council. He said this, and when he had said that, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided by the gospel. Catch that. The assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So they're pretty much on the, what we would think of as the liberal side of the council. The anti-supernatural side. The one who don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> I heard Chuck Swindoll say one time that they... They, they didn't, that's why they were named Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. <laughs> Evidently, they're at least grumpy. Everything's about the here and now, and there's nothing after. It said, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. They acknowledge resurrection. Why? Because, you know, they see it in the Word. They acknowledge them all. A great clamor. Now watch this. I've been to some church business meetings like this before. I'm not joking. You get church government wrong, you create all kinds of problems. <laughs> then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisee parties stood up. Now, all right, standing up now. And contended sharply with one another. And this thing's come off the hinges, right? The Pharisees are like, we find nothing wrong with this man. If a spirit or angel spoke to him, so what? And the dissent, look at this. The dis, it became violent. And the tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn in pieces by them. So he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. He's just not really having a lot of success finding out what the trouble is. Finding out what their complaints are. 
But Paul has put out there the hope and the resurrection and boom, everything blew up. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and now they're chest to chest and it says it's become violent. It's at least become verbally violent. And so he has to remove him. But look back, if you will, let's, let's just talk just a little bit. See, at Grace Church, it's not only Easter when we talk about the resurrection. And we really should remind ourselves about the resurrection as God's people every day. Christ's resurrection and what that means for us. But look back at verse 6 when he says, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to... It, this is the way the ESV puts it. The hope and the resurrection of the dead. It's respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. This is really what the point is. It is the resurrection is the linchpin. This is why I'm here because I have been saying, I, I was persecuting it at first, but now I have been saying that Jesus has been raised from the grave, that He is both Lord and Savior, He is the Messiah, and that all people must turn and trust in Him for salvation. So Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the person through which we must come for salvation. But the ESV says the hope and the resurrection. What this is is a, is a, is, this is, is a way of taking two different things and joining them by and to communicate one message. So you'll find a Hendiatus, if you care about knowing the name of that, but... It's really communicating one thing, and that's why you'll say ESV and some other translations, just going strictly, literally from words in the, in the original, have it the hope and the resurrection. Some others, I think, are making clearer what's going on here by saying the hope of the resurrection. It's just slow. It's a, a device used to slow you down, to make you focus, to make you think and see what's going on. That the hope is really hope in the resurrection, so it's the hope of of the resurrection that has gotten Paul in trouble. Because he, although he identified with the Pharisees here, he has said that the hope of the resurrection comes through Jesus. And just like he was once trying to destroy that message, these men he's in front of now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are still trying to destroy that message. And it has gotten Paul in trouble. So the better sort of translation of that is the hope of the resurrection. And listen, just because your translation might have got that part right doesn't mean it's right about everything, so don't, no. <laughs> I'm teasing. There's not a perfect, I say that to say, there's not a perfect translation. There's some really good translations and some really bad ones, but there's not a perfect one yet. We're still working on it. I say that like I'm working on it. I'm not, but... The church. So the hope of the resurrection. Look at the two. I just want to, I want to come away from that. Why, why did he say that? Why was it necessary that the one who would replace Judas in the first chapter of Acts be a witness to the resurrection? Because the resurrection is the keynote. It is the linchpin. Without the resurrection, there's no hope. If Jesus wasn't raised, and we'll see that. But secondly, the proof of the resurrection. God said in chapter 17, we'll see that later, that he has given proof that the one He has chosen will judge the world in righteousness. He's given proof by raising Him from the dead. And that is Jesus. 
So look at back, look back to number two, point two, big heading two, whatever you want to call that, the proof of the resurrection. Very beginning of this book, Luke writes this in the first three verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's ascension. So he's began to do with all that he began to do and teach until he was taken up. After, now watch this, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by one proof, many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The reason Paul believes in the resurrection, he's seen Christ. And the reason that the apostles believe is because if you remember reading the Gospels, they have seen Jesus risen and He has spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God before His ascension. And there was no denying it. What transformed this group of men from fearing and cowering in a room, thinking the authorities were coming after them, to stepping out boldly in the streets and preaching the gospel of good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, was His appearance to them. And it completely, radically changed everything for them. But Luke has been called a historian of the first rank and he's presenting what has happened. And what happened was Jesus was raised from the grave and he appeared to the apostles and assured them that everything he had taught them was true and commissioned them and sent them out and threw them us out with the gospel. So the proof of the resurrection was right there when he appeared to his disciples and his apostles and, and confirmed that. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Paul, this is Paul who's in trouble. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said this. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now watch. That Christ, what does that mean? That's just Greek for Messiah. The Jewish hope in the Old Testament. That, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. See, the prediction, Sam read one of the predictions of resurrection in Psalm 16 today, but it's, it's all through the Old Testament that the one who would crush the serpent's head and conquer the serpent and conquer sin for his people would die for our sins. You see that in all the sacrifices. You see it in, in, in Isaiah 53 and so many other places that the coming Messiah would die. So when he says according to the Scriptures, he's saying according to predicted by what we call the Old Testament. So he, he, he died for, not for his own crimes, he died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins, according to the Scripture. Now watch. And he was buried, verse 4. And he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Resurrection, Sam read uh, one text that is resurrection in the Old Testament, the end of that psalm. But it's all through the Old Testament. Again, Isaiah 53, you can go see it there and, and many other places. He was raised from the dead in accordance with what had been predicted. You could say it that way. In the Scriptures. Now watch this. He didn't just come out of the tomb and fly up to heaven. And He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And remember, Paul is writing. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
Jesus didn't just appear to the twelve. At one point, He appeared to more than 500 at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Why does He say that? He's, because you can go ask them at the point of this writing. You don't believe me, you can go talk to them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, see, He didn't just appear once. Now, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live in perfect fulfillment of his own law, to provide a righteousness for his people. Then he died to pay the penalty for our sins and suffer condemnation. Being God and man, He could take that eternal punishment on Himself on that cross and drink it dry and say before He gave up the Spirit, it is finished. He satisfied justice for His people so that His blood, which means His sacrifice, His death, washes away all of our sins and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And it's all a free gift to us because He paid for it. If you will be saved, it will be because you have received it as a free gift. You cannot work for it, earn it, clean yourself up first. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And Jesus was raised. And Paul said that is the gospel that we believe and by which we are saved. So we are saved trusting in a risen Savior. Paul is giving us eyewitness testimony. Because he saw Jesus too. That Christ had been ridden. Do you know one of the things that convinced... Now this is the Spirit. Obviously we know the Holy Spirit convinces us it's the Word of God and the Gospel is true. But intellectually speaking, one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the resurrection is the silliness of the people that try to deny it and try to explain it away. Silly things like he didn't just, he didn't die. He just swooned. And in the cool tomb, he revived. And somehow blew the door off the tomb. And I guess he crawled to the upper room and convinced them that he was raised from the grave. Come on now. That is silliness. It's nothing but silliness and blind unbelief, willful unbelief. Jesus actually died. He was dead. He didn't just swoon. The Romans were master executioners. They were master executioners. Pilate made sure he was dead before giving the body to Joseph of Arimathea. If you, if you want to go read about that, Mark 15, 43 to 45. You can go there and read about that. Pilate made sure he was dead before he gave the body over. A soldier stuck a spear in his heart so that both blood and water come out, testifying to his death. It's like, it would be like, you know, you see in modern day executions where they're in, the, in there and they're strapped down and all the... the um, the chemicals are running in the veins and you have doctors and nurses there verifying that they're dead. They made certain he was dead. And when they took him down from the cross, they knew he was dead. They were grieving madly. 
and then buried him and put spices on him and put him in the tomb. But it is, it is silliness with no proof. It is a demonstration of willful unbelief to say, he didn't just die. He just kind of passed out. And the Romans just didn't know he wasn't dead. No, he really died. That's why they buried him. They put him in the tomb. So that's one. Jesus actually died. It's proved in the scripture. It's proved by what happened and doctors testified of the separating. And I don't know the technical terms from this, but serum from the, the red, the red part and the clear part separate. He was dead. How about that? I'm not a doctor. And the tomb was empty. That's fascinating to me. You know, you know why the tomb, we really don't know if the garden, if you go on a tour of, of Israel to the garden tomb, they can't tell you for sure that was the tomb. We don't know that for sure. You know why? It wasn't a big deal. He wasn't in there. He came out. He was raised from the grave, so they didn't make a big deal over where the grave was. At that point, it's just a hole. Of course, it wasn't a hole. You've seen the pictures of the tombs cut out of the rock. But the exact location is not 100% certain. Nobody knows for sure why they didn't care. But listen, if they just went to the wrong tomb and didn't find Jesus and made up this big story and got out in Jerusalem saying that Jesus had been raised from the grave, if he hadn't, you know what the Romans would have done? And the, and the Jews would have, they would have just gone to the right tomb and produced the body and said, shut up. They couldn't do that. You know why? They knew exactly where the tomb was. They put Roman guards around it because he wasn't in there anymore. I mean, they put a Roman guard around that tomb to, to keep the apostles from doing anything weird and stealing the body or from anything happening. They want to make sure he's dead, he's gone, and he's going to stay that way. Well, God had a different idea blew the door off of it and scared the Romans half to death and they ran to the Jews and the Jews paid them and said, we'll satisfy Caesar. You just say that the apostles stole the body. So this group of cowering dudes in the corner in the room overcame Roman soldiers to steal the body. Well, we were asleep. Do you see what I mean? The silliness of people that try to explain away the resurrection? I mean, on the face of it, it just doesn't make sense. Thirdly, first, he died. The tomb was empty. Thirdly, the disciples believed that they saw Jesus raised and they believed it so strongly they were willing to die for that truth. They were willing to die for the good news of Jesus' resurrection. They were not co-conspirators in the world's biggest and, and smartest and craftiest and world-changing lie. You say, well, people die from, about, for things that aren't true all the time. I mean, why do those Muslims fly the planes into the building in New York? Because they thought they were going to have some 72 virgins and stuff after that was over. Sad to say, and I don't say it flippantly, big shock when you end up in torment instead of in paradise with virgins. But they believed what they believed was true and so they were willing to die for it. People die for lies all the time, but not lies they know to be lies. 
And that's the difference. People don't die for lies they know to be lies. They don't keep secrets they don't know that they know are not true when the pressure hits. See, Paul's willing to stare down everybody for the resurrection and die for it. The apostles were willing to stare down the authorities and say, you do whatever you need to do. As for us, we can't help but testify to the resurrection. What we've seen and heard, they said. I don't know how many of you remember the Watergate scandal and the Watergate break-in and the trouble that Nixon got into all the trouble and how the, you know, they broke into the Democratic headquarters. And it's a big, hairy story, and you don't even need to know the details for this. But one of the guys that got in trouble and actually went to prison was Chuck Colson, or Charles Colson. And he, he was converted through prison ministry and, and, and all of that. But he said this. Listen to what Colson says, and he's right. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone, every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison, and most died. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watch this. He said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, people don't die for things they know are not true. In fact, they, these, these men died for what they knew was true because Jesus had appeared to them and convinced them of it. They weren't these bold people to start with. Remember, they're hiding in the upper room, afraid to answer the door. I mean, the women are going out and being the first ones to see Jesus because the dudes are hiding. Third, his disciples knew they saw Jesus. Fourth, these men were Jews. These apostles were Jews. How else do you explain the fact that they stopped worshiping on Saturday and made Sunday the day of worship, the first day of the week? What, what would account for that transition? But the resurrection from the dead, Jesus fulfilled the old and brings in the new. They changed their whole belief system. They now met for worship on the first day instead of the Sabbath. They now celebrated the Lord's Supper that proclaims His death un until He comes. And they now celebrated baptism, which is a testimony of His death, burial, and resurrection. See, their whole theological world was rocked by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you one more thing. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection than anything else in antiquity. More manuscript evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. I mean, you just look at these things and, and you can see some of that. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But Caesar's Gaelic Wars, written in from 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copy we have is like a thousand years later. And there's only ten manuscripts. Plato, written... 427 to 347 B.C. Earliest copy, 900 A.D. 1,200-year gap, only seven. You can read the rest of the list and see the paltriness of it, but I'll skip down to Homer's Iliad. It was pretty famous, right? 
written in 900 B.C. The first copy we have dates to 400 B.C. 500 years difference. We have 643 testimonies or manuscripts. The New Testament written from 40 to 100 A.D. 100 earliest copy is 125 A.D. Within 25 to 50 years of the actual original writing and we have thousands of manuscripts. Bukus of evidence. Now that won't convince anybody who's not a believer because the Spirit has to apply the gospel. I remember evidences that like that shored me up after I came to faith, right? But there's more literary historical evidence for the resurrection than for any other act of antiquity. Even current. There's no reason to deny the resurrection except for sinful bias and willful unbelief. Christ has been raised from the grave and He proves that the gospel is true. It's been given to men to live once, to die, and then face the judgment. And guess who we will face? Who will be on that throne? The Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know the truth of that now, before then. Because without the resurrection, we're wasting our time this morning. That's my third point, the necessity of the resurrection. I'm almost done. The hope of the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.4, Paul's already told us, He, Jesus, was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he says that is part of the gospel. Because Jesus was raised, all who hope in Him will be raised. John 6.40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The gospel delivers us from the fear of death. The fangs have been taken out of death. Death is just a shuttle ride to glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to fear death anymore. But if Jesus was not raised, watch what the same Paul says later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found misrepresenting God because we testified that God raised Christ whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You will face judgment on your own if Christ has not been raised. Paul says Christianity is silly if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave. Christianity is a waste of time if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave. Because we ha- our biggest problem has not been solved. Life without resurrection is li- no hope after death, no hope to see loved ones again, faith is futile, still in your sins, this is as good as it gets. So I guess if there is no resurrection... Joel Osteen's book, Have Your Best Life Now, makes more sense. Sorry. Don't listen to me. You know a funny story? 
One time I was preaching a sermon and I was using Joel Osteen as an example of someone who doesn't teach the truth. And there was a quote on this screen by Joel Osteen. And my wonderful wife took a picture of me preaching at just the right time to show me preaching with a quote from Joel Osteen behind me. Boy, did that ever need to get set in context. Sorry, rabbit shot. If there is no resurrection, this gospel thing is silly. I really don't understand liberal Christianity. And Paul didn't either. And God, you know, it, just, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says right after that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Victory over death is in His resurrection. And He promises to raise us. What happens to the believer at death? If we die before Jesus comes back, our body rests in the grave, but our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Fullness of joy immediately. And then at His turn, His return, our bodies are raised and we're, we have a new body and we live with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Life with resurrection is hope after death. Hope to see loved ones who've passed on. Faith is fruitful and productive and profitable and it connects us to the grace of God. All our sins are atoned for. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We now have joy and purpose and satisfaction. And this life for the believer is as bad as it gets. This is your worst life now if you're trusting in Jesus. Death sets us free. But we have joy and purpose until then. Part of something bigger, much bigger than you. See, Paul's mention of the resurrection split the assembly. Some believed in resurrection, some didn't. Bigger picture, the doctrine splits the world. Some believe in life after death and some don't. Not all of who believe in it are Christians, by the way. But just believing in life after death won't get you anywhere good. You must find it in Jesus. And it is a free gift to you if you'll receive Him. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. God sacrificed His Son to deliver us from what we justly deserve, which is death and condemnation. And our Savior will be the judge of the world. See, judgment's already been passed over us as we're we trust in Him and we are justified or declared righteous in Him. But Christ is coming again. And when He comes again, it won't be to give the gospel out. It will be to sit in judgment. Look at this, Acts 17, 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul again. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now watch this, God's not playing, He's not just suggesting Jesus to you. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin and self to God and salvation and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has given assurance to all that the gospel is true by raising his son from the dead. 
And his son has ascended into heaven and is sitting in, on the throne and is reigning for his church to get this gospel to the ends of the earth. And then he will come again and have a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, this is what Paul has in mind and this is what he wants to expound upon in that meeting. But the meeting blew up in disagreement. We know he wants to give the gospel to what his Jewish brethren tell them. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Since the garden, death has been promised to sin. Spiritual death as well as physical death. We won't just physically die, but we'll be separated from God and suffer condemnation for our sins. That's what we deserve. But... The wages of sin is death, but watch this, Romans 6, 23, the great news. You can't, you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You receive it as a free gift. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the hope of the resurrection. That was the keynote of Paul's ministry because it's the keynote of Christianity is that the Savior has been raised and is reigning the gospel is true. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day. And eternal life is a free gift to you if you will turn and trust in Him. See, we started with a couple of quotes. One who feared death and did not know what to expect afterward. Another who pointed to what to expect through the new birth and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we end with one who knows all and came to deliver us from the enemy of death. Jesus. Christ. Our Savior. The Messiah. The one who conquered sin and death for us. Who paid the penalty for our sin. And was raised from the grave. See, he took death, both physical and spiritual. And defeated it for all who will trust in him simple question, are you trusting? Are you trusting and resting in Christ? Do you love Him and want to live for Him? Want to serve Him the way He has served us. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have eternal life and it's a free gift. So trust in the King of life. Trust in the King, the resurrected King. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will have the hope of the resurrection. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that every soul here will have been humbled by Your truth and will turn and trust in Your Son. Will receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who will cry out to You like the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving a new heart and new power and new love to love and serve you, Lord Jesus. Lord, convert those who don't know you. Grow in grace those of us to, who do. Set us free from all legalism and excite us about the grace that is ours in Christ and empower us, and burden us, and send us out to those around us with the good news of where we can truly 
show our neighbors that they can find life. Life beyond this life. Part of this life, but lasting for eternity. Eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for the gift of your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray and hope. Amen.